You may be seated, and if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. If you're visiting with us and maybe you are new to the Bible, we've printed the text for you in the worship guide, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you just to grab one of those Bibles in the pew and take it home with you. We are in the middle of a three-part series on what is often referred to as the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, which is the third in a series of parables that Jesus in verse 3, actually we're told he actually calls it one parable. We're actually calling it the parable of two sons, and we'll see why here this morning. I had a, <coughs> I had a, I woke up to a dream this morning where um, I'd gotten into the pulpit and couldn't read my Bible. Um, never had that dream before, and Mark was up here trying to help me, and Keaton was trying to help me, and we just couldn't figure out how to get Paul to read his Bible. <laughs> we'll give it a go. <clears throat> Luke chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then jump down to verse 11. This is God's Word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he Divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on his word preached. Lord Jesus, you reign after having defeated all of our enemies. You sat down. Your work was finished. And you reign. But your work is not yet finished in this world and in our hearts. And so with your reigning power, come and work in our midst. Some being seen your glory and brought from death to life for the first time, putting their faith in you this morning. But all of us needing to be renewed again by your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, show us sin in our hearts and then show us the greater glory of Jesus as a Savior for sinners. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, religious people often find the gospel of Jesus to be less satisfying and less than joy-giving. Yet the kingdom of God is a, a kingdom of, uh, it's a celebration, it's a kingdom of joy, right? The, it's like a giant party where the best food is served when a lost son returns. It's like a wedding feast when Jesus is delighting over his bride, his people. It's like, it's like a wedding where the best wine is brought out so the celebration can begin when Jesus shows up. And yet, it's often the case that our experience with God is more like an oppressive work environment. Never enough, never satisfied. Always asking for more. Maslow was famous for creating his hierarchy of human needs, the most basic needs at the bottom, and then ascending in priority towards the top. For instance, our need for food and shelter was at the very bottom. It's the most basic need. And then fulfilling one's potential is at the top, what Maslow called self-actualization. And the point of his ordering things this way was to point out that unless the most basic needs are fulfilled, none of the other needs can actually be thought of. You can't think about your self-actualized need for purpose and meaning in life if you are starving to death and have no food to eat, no water to drink. That's why his hierarchy was drawn as a pyramid. The base has to be met. It has to be solid in order to move up to the higher needs of the human heart. But let me suggest this, that Maslow got the bottom rung wrong. A more deep need, even under our need for food and sustenance, underneath the 
physiological bodily needs to sustain life is a deeper security that permeates everything we do and every endeavor that we take on in the world. And it is the need for righteousness. And I think it can best be experienced this way. Just simply asking the question, how do you know when you have done enough? And no one can answer the question. We've never felt like we have done enough. The ultimate need for righteousness permeates everything that we do. Put two people together for long and they will eventually form sides. And the sides will eventually become those who are righteous and those who are wicked. That's why children tattle on siblings. They want mom and dad to take the side of the righteous and put the wicked in their place. And isn't that why most political discussions degenerate so quickly into righteous and wicked? Not that there aren't policies and positions that are righteous and some that are wicked, but rather our sense of being, it's tied to the position that we hold so that my people and I myself and righteous, and those people are wicked. It's our most basic need. And it's the one need that we cannot meet for ourselves. We're calling this the parable of the two sons because there are two sons in this parable, and they're both running from the love of the Father. This parable is actually a three-part series of parables, three different stories. Remember the context from verse 1 and 2. Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. He's sat them around his table, some leaning back against him. Very much a season of embracing these individuals. And the Pharisees and the scribes are standing on the outside and grumbling because he's embraced them. We often call these series of parables the lost parables because in every single one of the parables, something is lost and then found. And each of the parables is a three-act play. Act one, something is lost. Act two, someone goes through a great deal of effort to rescue it. And then the denouement, the final scene, the celebration happens. When it is found, heaven is rejoicing because God's heart is a heart that overflows with joy for his people. That is the heart of God, the, his joy over his people, not based on our performance, but on his performance as the God who seeks and saves, who redeems and rescues. His temperament is not like a trigger but full of joy and grace he will himself deal with his wrath by his own effort sending forth his son to be the sin atoning wrath eating sacrifice for our sin that is born out of the heart of the father who is gracious and full of joy and it secures for us the grace and joy of the father he is a god who celebrates over his people who are in Christ. And yet, when we come to the final parable, 
it has three parts too. The younger son is lost. The father goes through a great deal of effort to make sure he is redeemed and rescued from his own self-induced shame. And then he's found and a party begins. Heaven is celebrating. It's fitting. But let me tell you that when the original audience heard this story, there was no sentimental moment with tears. They're not passing tissues around thinking this is such a delightful story. Their fists would have been clenched. Their jaws tightened up. And you would have heard the pin drop in the room because the anger would have been palatable. The younger son is lost. The younger son is found. The big old party begins. But that's not the end of this story. Because the father has to go out one more time. There is one more son that is lost. One more son who needs to be brought home. But this son is lost because of his goodness. It is his obedience, his self-made righteousness that is keeping him from the love of the father. The older son has been home. He has been diligent and faithful, working for his father. He has been out in the field when the younger son returns home. And at the end of the long day of serving, he starts to head back to the village and he hears the feast, the village feast happening, dancing and Loud music. So he calls one of his servants. What's going on in there? And the servant says to the older brother in verse 27. Your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf. Because he received him back safe and sound. And then verse 28. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out. And entreated him. But he answered his father. Look these many years I've served you. And I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. The the older son's been at home. He has been working faithfully. But he is working for the father. But not under The father's economy. It's under the economy that he wants. Not the economy that the father has built in his own household. The older son has been involved in the father's affairs. Promoting the father's issues. Carries out the father's agenda. But does not know or delight in the father's heart. He was too used to functioning for himself, you'll notice that most of his speech to his father is me, 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 me. He too has used the father's goods to build his own way in the world. Just as the younger son asked for his inheritance so that he could go spend it on his father, the older son, in all of his obedience in the father's household, is doing so. For him 
self. That is always the heart of sin. It is always about me. Rebellion against God. But there are two faces to that rebellion. There's the religious way to rebel against the Father too. You can see both sons say to the Father, I don't need you and I don't treasure your love. The younger son made the Father his slave. I'll take your goods and I will, all that you earned, and I will go spend it on myself. But do you see that the older son, in his obedience, is making the Father his slave too? Because he's demanding. That he too be rewarded for his goodness. Goodness at times, our own goodness, our own obedience, our own righteousness can be our main weapon in keeping God at a distance. And listen, I'll tell you this. While both sons, both of these dispositions towards rebellion reside in my heart. It's the disposition of the older son's sins that I've most embraced in my life after becoming a Christian. Our fathers in the faith used to refer to this as a legal temper or a temperament. A disposition, a mindset. Think of it as the default way you carry yourself out in the world. It's, it's who we really are, this sort of temperament. They would say There's, there is a legal temperament in all of us. And think of your temperament as this. It's your default self when you can't manage yourself anymore. So you might, you know, you might have been short to your spouse and you say, I'm sorry that I snapped at you. I have a lot going on at work right now. And what you're really saying is, well, um, I didn't have the margin to guard you against myself today and present to you the best version of myself. And so what you really saw in my exhaustion was the real me. My default came out and I was exposed And the temperament of the older brother is to place self and others under the oppressive and heavy cloud of should and the treadmill of do. And that's the default of the human heart. Every single one of us. This is the entire driving engine of social media. You should look like this. So go do these things. You should care about this cause. If you are righteous, so go do these things. And the legal temperament shows up even in our failure. You feel your failure. And so our immediate response is, I need to start performing. I should have done this, though I will go and do this. And sometimes it's easier even to play the victim as a means of attaining our righteousness than it is to just keep performing. You should have treated me this way. And I feel my unrighteousness. And so I'll just gain righteousness cheaply by playing the victim. That's the legal mindset. My worth is based on my performance. It's no wonder then that we are so exhausted and without rest in almost everything we do. This mindset often comes into the church for all of us as well. Where Jesus promised, come to me and I will give you rest. And yet we live the exhausted Christian life. But there's another way that you know you're in a legal mind. Look at verse 27 and 28. 
The servant makes the announcements of the father's party. Your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Anger is often the primary emotion of the older brother. It's anger towards others because they haven't done what they should be doing. Anger that I haven't gotten what I deserved. I've worked so hard to build the life that I wanted it and didn't work out like I wanted it to. And so I'm angry. I'm angry at others and I'm angry at God. That anger will quickly turn on others and you'll have little room for the failure of others. Even a little mistake brings on great condemnation from our lips. When this son of yours came, you won't even call him his brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, there's no indication that that was the case. He's pointing him in the worst possible light. You killed the fattened calf for him. This is a sad reality, but I've often rolled it out amongst Christian workers, whether it's church, school, other ministries. I'll say this. Christians are some of the meanest and most critical people I know. And the initial response is usually, I can't believe you just said that. But the follow-up response is always, it's true. The very people who should be the least critical and most forgiving are often the most critical and least forgiving. And again, both of these are in my heart. This is what I've struggled with most after becoming a Christian. And I think it's a twofold problem. It's easy to use God's commands, the ways of God, whose heart overflows with joy to sinners, to bludgeon others. But you see, the general disposition of the father's household, the default mode, is joy, not harshness. Grace, not condemnation. Delight and forgiveness and the covering of shame. Often our anger reveals that our good works are just our attempts at gaining leverage against God and against others, not out of love and delight in Him or then, but an attempt to gain just a little bit more of an advantage and put others into our debt. And when it doesn't work out that way and our dreams aren't met, our heart screams out like the older brother. I have slaved for you all of these years. And you see the, the, the irony here at this very point. The, the older brother would recite the first part of the shorter catechism. Question one, what is the chief end of man? He would stand up and say to glorify God. And he would simply neglect the second part. And enjoy him forever. And you see the irony here is, the, is where we've stuck. Is we've not sufficiently loved God and his glory. And our zeal for his ways are not sufficient. For if we would love God. We have loved his law as an expression of his righteousness. And we would have fallen under the weight of his law and cried out for mercy and grace. Rather, we use it to club ourselves and we just can't take it anymore. And we use it as a club to beat down others. And the only antidote for this 
is to measure ourselves against the righteousness of God until we break. For the law is meant to bring an end to ourselves. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's meant to break our addiction to the hardcore drug of performance so that we might fall into the loving embrace of the Father and see His countenance erupt in joy over us. We must never condemn in others what we've not first grieved in ourselves. Let me give this just as a rule when assessing any problem in the world. Any assessment of the problem in the world must include me as part of the problem. Because only then when we've tasted the amazing grace of God and His power to deliver us from our sins, will we experience joy. And that joy is our birthright in Christ. Because you see, the story's not over. Because the heart of God is full of compassion, even for the older brother. The heart goes out again. The younger son has come home and the older son has pulled out the weapon of his finger and began wagging it. But the finger wagger doesn't get the finger wagger back from the father. Remember the hinge of the story is all the way back in verse 20. It's the compassion of the father that moved him towards his younger son. He had felt so deeply the weight of his younger son's brokenness, the shame that awaited them, his bowels, his gut, his soul was moved. It began to retch when he thought of the shame that his younger son would experience. And so he ran out to protect him in his love, to cover him with his honor so that he could enjoy the rejoicing of his father. And the father does the same for the older son. He feels the same, does the same, goes out to rescue the older son from the weight of the cloud of should and the treadmill of doom. So he leaves the party and he enters into the shame of the older son. Everyone in the watching village would have known what was going on when they saw the older son outside saying, I will not come in. And then the father moves out. It would have dishonored his father. This would have been a great dishonor. The party would have stopped. The instruments would have ceased. The wine would have quit being poured. And they would have thought, oh no, Surely the older son's dishonoring of his father will bring out the anger of his father because the father's got to preserve his own dignity and honor at the expense of the son who shamed him. But no, he doesn't. He doesn't finger wag at the finger waggers. Look at verse 28. Luke has a ton of words to use here, all for the same Greek word for call. He was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Luke could have said any number of words. He, he could have said he, he summoned him by calling him to himself. Just have to put a few extra letters on the word for call. You get that. He could have summoned him. He could have begged him to come to him. He could have beat him, but instead he entreats him. He pleads with him. It's a very particular word that means to come alongside with intimacy, to invite winsomely, tenderly, come in. There's something a lot better for you 
in this party then your angry, self-entrenched, self-righteousness, this economy is killing you and it's killing our relationship. I'm begging you, there's something so much better in this house of joy than the grumbling that you are experiencing on the outside. And he graciously absorbs the older son's anger and accusation. He answered his father, look these many years, I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Surely that is not even close to true. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed him and killed the fattened calf for him. You see what's going on? The the son who has no rights to make any demands and the father who has all the rights just simply absorbs and pleads. He's come down. Not to answer and put the son in his place, but to absorb and return grace. That's the heart of the cross of Jesus. As the heart of God the Father who did not strike those who struck him, but instead absorbed their blows so that he could stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God for our sins. The same Savior who tells the story stood receiving the unjust blows of the Roman citizens and soldiers and even his own people who had falsely accused him and said this, Father, please forgive them. They don't understand what they are doing to absorb and then return grace so that in our sins he could then enter into our lives entreating us come enjoy the joy of my father's house do you hear the reminder that's meant to melt the heart of the older son son you are always with me and all that I have is yours. I've built this entire thing for your enjoyment. I have gained all of this wealth to graciously give away for you. There is no economy in my house of self-earned anything. At any moment, at the simplest request, I would graciously and with joy give you everything because it's all yours. I have never held back. I've earned it and I gave it freely. You just haven't received it. And you see the story is also in a three-act play. A son was lost. The father exerted a great deal of effort to find him. But there's no third act to this play. The story's unresolved at the end. The son is lost. The father goes out. But we'll, our, we are left hanging. Will this one be found too? There's one more party that needs to happen. It's waiting to be thrown. We're left wondering, will this one come in and enjoy the party too? And you can imagine Jesus now looking up from the table where he has sat with the tax collectors and sinners And catching the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes. You belong to this table too. You're all in the same category. Older brothers come in 
and enjoy the Father's joy by grace. And then sing with William Cooper this new song. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precepts to obey, but toiled without success. But then all my servile works were done. A righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son. I freely choose His ways to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice. Change as a slave and to a child and duty to choice. This is our feast. We're coming to the table where the Savior eats with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe all of your life you have thought, my goodness is enough. He's looking up at you and saying, come. Get off the should and do and rest. And eat at my table and experience the love of the Father. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table of your Son... We are so thrilled to be with the Savior who delights to do your will and to do so on our behalf. And the only righteousness that we raise is His. And we now have an answer that fills us with joy. How do you know when you've done enough when I have Jesus and His righteousness? And when I have that, I have full access to the joy and delight of a father who is pleased to see me. And so as we come, take these ordinary elements, use them to the extraordinary end of filling our hearts with the sufficiency of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.